Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is half an hour of science coming at you on your radio uh, dial machine. Uh, my name is Chris, and this week I am going to be looking at how science is not always as reliable as you may think. Um, there have been a few studies lately looking at the accuracy of published research um, pre-published research findings in psychology in particular. I'm going to have a bit of a look at that and see how... Yeah, what what it means why you can't always trust what you read and how we can improve the um, how we can improve science and make it and make it more so that we know what is really going on. Um, yeah, anyway, that is science in the big picture. Stu, what have you got for us? Well, uh, I've heard a lot about sugar in my life. Um, you know, no one's ever no one's ever come out and said sugar's the greatest thing and everyone should eat heaps of it. But lately, I've been hearing people saying all sorts of things about sugar that it's the cause of obesity epidemics and it's toxic and it's a poison and it's addictive and all this other stuff. So I thought I would uh, ask someone who knows about such things. So I'm going to be talking to Dr. Alan Barkley, who is uh, from the Dietitians Association of Australia, and ask him uh, exactly what is the deal with sugar. Brilliant. Um, That is a very topical discussion. It is. is. About time we had something like that. Manisha, how are you going to entertain us today? Um, so today I'm going to be discussing different, well, not different ways that animals adapt, but one particular way that animals adapt to urbanization and how our birdies are surviving in the city. Excellent. Uh, and they are surviving? Uh, yeah. Well, I guess it depends on the species, but we've got some good, some good species in the cities. So, yeah, we'll see how they're, how they're managing to find a mate. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. Well, on with the show. All right, I don't really want to pick on psychology. I've got nothing against psychology as such, but I'm going to pick on psychology a little bit in this story today, partly because it's an area that generates a lot of headlines, gets a lot of attention, but also because there have been some recent events and studies showing some problems with psychology. But these are the problems you see in other areas of science as well. So again, we're not singling out psychology because it's bad, just because it's convenient, I think. (laughs) Look, I'm going to bring up an example, first of all. You might have seen this. It was got a bit of attention last December, in December 2014. There was a study on a same-sex marriage in California where basically what they did, they had people sort of canvassing support for same-sex marriage, and they found that if there was a gay canvasser who revealed themselves as gay to the person they're talking to during the conversation, that they were more likely to change their mind regarding, you know, be more in favour of gay marriage as a result. So this was a surprising finding because, you know, it's often very difficult to turn around to people's opinions like that, but this one supposedly had a huge effect, until people tried to replicate the study and then they found that they didn't get the same results and eventually they contacted the survey firm that had supposedly done the original study and they said they had no familiarity with it and ended up with the study having to be retracted because it turned out to have been faked. 
pretty much. So, so this was a study that actually never took place, but was published as if it did. Never, that, yeah, yeah, that's that's right, and it, it got a lot of attention because it's a really interesting finding, really positive finding that you know basically people thought, well, we just tell them a nice story and people are going to believe the right thing. It's in you know, a personal touch would make the difference, but yeah, it didn't turn out to be true, unfortunately. Mm. And so this one turns out to be like you could say it's a pretty much a case of fraud, I suppose. But it doesn't have to be outright fraud when something a study hasn't turned out to be right. Sometimes just by chance or by you know the best of intentions, studies turn out to be wrong. And this was shown also with psychology recently in a study that was published by Brian Nosek from the University of Virginia. He and 270 fellow researchers did a thing called the Reproducibility Project where they took 100 papers that were published in three top peer-reviewed psychology journals in 2008 and tried to reproduce their findings. So they looked at all these findings. All but three of the papers they examined had cooperation from the authors of the original studies. So this was kind of all above the board. They were, you know, they they made sure they tried to reproduce exactly what the original authors were doing. And what they found that only thirty six percent of their replicated studies got significant results compared with ninety seven percent of the original articles. Hmm. So it was a very small result of confirming the the findings. So it's just a bit over a third of them, they, yeah. could, they could get the same result. Basically, yeah. Right. And so that was kind of a big surprise for everyone. everyone. I mean, people knew that there was a problem with reproducing findings, but no one knew that the problem was quite so big. Look, to give you some of the examples, one of the ones that failed to replicate was a study that found that if you encourage people to believe that there is no such thing as free will, they're more likely to cheat. That was a study that they could not replicate. Um, one that stood up that they was able to replicate it was a study that found that when people who were, you give them a confrontational task, like they have to play a violent video game, that if you do that, they prefer to listen to angry music and ha- think about negative experiences before engaging in this confrontational task. So, you know, these are complicated things. There's a range of different stuff. These were just like randomly select. Well, they weren't randomly selected. They were from this particular journal. So they didn't actually pick particular studies to say, well, this one looks less likely or not. They just took everything and tried them. So there's a range of stuff. And some of them kind of agree with your intuition. Other ones don't. But, yeah, only 36% got significant results, which is kind of a disappointing result. But, look, the reason they picked psychology, again, was not because psychology was known to have particular problems. It was basically because these were some psychologists and they wanted to, to test it out in their own field. The same problem has been found in other areas. One that they brought up was in genetics, where they found, apparently in genetics fairly early on, they found that it was fairly easy to find genes and genetic traits that will to link them to human diseases, but many of these turn out to be false down the track. And so what they basically realised they need to do is do much larger studies involving many institutes collaborating together, huge numbers of volunteers, and by having this larger, more better statistics, essentially they got better results and more reliable results. Now this was the same kind of example that was used by a researcher called John Ioannidis, who wrote a paper in 2005 called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. <laughs> so that's been a landmark paper that's been a bit of an influence. Now, the example he used was that, for instance, if you're trying to find a genetic cause for schizophrenia and you suspect there might be 10 genes involved, uh, but you're looking for them out of 100,000 genes, then based on statistics alone, you are bound to find connections, like genetic connections that aren't actually really related mm. to schizophrenia. 
And this situation, that's just based on statistics. That's not with any kind of bias and all that. When you actually introduce bias, of course, it gets even worse. So like, you know, some people say cherry pick, they'll get the good results out of the studies. They'll do data mining where they'll look through a whole lot of data and try and find any significant correlations. And there's also just publication bias where basically people tend to only publish positive results that agree with their hypothesis. In fact, John Agonidis says that he reckons that research findings can often be a better measure of the bias in the field rather than what's really going on. So it's kind of a um, depressing sort of... It's a bit of a worry, really. A bit of a worry, but... Yeah. Well, especially because, you know, most people base their ongoing research on research that's already been done. Yeah. So if people are sort of assuming that other people's research results or research publications are the reality... Yeah then they will do further research, which is probably going to be further confounded by their own biases, which is based on what they think is already happening. So that's not Absolutely. really helping anyone. Well, also, Ioannidis was basically looking at statistics of science overall, but he was mostly thinking about medical science, medical right. research. And so it's not just a question of advancing science. This is actual treatments that are then used on actual patients. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it is actually a, can be a, a significant problem down the track when it involves, you know, the way that the medications that people are going to be doing or the kind of treatment options people are going to be presented with. Now, I suppose the, the thing that he found, though, because he was looking at statistics, he found that the better quality the research is and the more subjects you have involved in it, the more likely it is to be true. And this is what the same as this um, no-sex team working on psychology found, that basically what you could see to whether a paper was likely to be replicated depend on the strength of the initial paper in terms of the number of the, the sample size that they had, so the larger the significance and the larger the effect that was detected. It had nothing to do with things like how good the actual scientists were doing the research. It was basically all about the statistics, the quality of the the trial and the the number of participants involved in it. So, yeah, that is kind of what you need to look for. And, of course, it helps if people try and replicate the results like they did in this study. That isn't easy to publish, though, replicating research, because, you know, you get publications and you get attention by having a new result that no one was expecting. And just by copying someone's research to see if it's true or not, it's not the kind of thing that's necessarily going to get advance your career or get you a lot of attention. But this team, I guess, showed that it can be done. They've put a lot of effort in and, mm. you know, they've, they've got a bit of attention out of it. They, they've shown that it can be done. And people are going to be trying this in other fields now. So he's got a colleague who was trying to do the same kind of thing in cancer biology. They're looking at five high-profile cancer biology studies. They're going to try and do the same kind of research and see whether the same effect can be done in that field. And there's other people looking at fields from you know, ecology to computer science trying to do it. You can also try and remove bias, I suppose, in these things. As well as having better quality studies just from the pure numbers, you can try to remove bias. And one of the things that's been done in a lot of a lot of medical research is when you're looking at randomized tr- controlled trials is to pre-register trials. And this is where basically you say beforehand what you're going to study, how you're going to do it, and you kind of have a commitment to release the data or to publish the research. And this kind of reduces the chance that someone can then cherry pick the results or mm-hmm. you know, change their methodology after the fact basically on what, based on what they're finding essentially and try and you know, gain the system I suppose a bit. So, yeah, again, this is um, not saying psychology is not worse than other areas. Uh, it does tend to get a lot of attention, though. You often see a strange study will come out with some surprising result that gets uh, the news and people will draw conclusions about them. But, you know, you should always pay attention to how significant is this really. You know, often these studies have small sample sizes. They're not going to be that significant. They're often a small effect. So, yeah, it's always important with these things, I think, to be sceptical of reports, especially if they sound like really unusual interesting. And I suppose there's also a bit of an onus on us here at Lost in Science and people like us when we're reporting on these things to be a bit responsible in the way we report. Hmm. 
scrutinise a bit more closely. Exactly. I have on the phone with me Dr. Alan Barclay, who is an accredited practicing dietitian, uh, who's also a spokesperson for the Dietitians Association of Australia. First of all, Alan, can you tell me exactly what, what does a dietitian do? We ask a person what they're eating and then work with them to improve their food and drink choices to improve their overall health. Uh, And that differs from a nutritionist to really help prevent people from becoming unwell through healthy lifestyles. Dietitians actually do the medical nutrition side of it and are supporting those um, dealing with disease at present. Okay, so you're you're the the sort of person that a a GP or someone would refer a patient to. That's right. The main reason I wanted to talk to you today was that I've been seeing a lot in the popular media and there's been some books and and even uh, films about sugar Um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people um, are giving up sugar for various health reasons they're you know they're saying that that sugar's sugar's the cause of a whole lot of different things that you know it causes obesity and it causes diabetes and some people even going as far as saying that it's toxic and that it's addictive so I just wanted to ask someone uh, who works in the field of medical uh, diets, effectively, what's the deal with sugar? Do we need sugar? And, and is giving up sugar going to solve everyone's problems? Well, I think there's a lot of what I call food terrorism going on these days and headlines flash almost daily singling out particular nutrients or foods as risk factors for various diseases. But Of course, we don't eat single nutrients, we eat foods, and foods are, of course, parts of habitual diets, and it's really those habitual diets that are related to various diseases, the patterns of eating. So it's unfortunate that um, we've sort of come off the fatties, the demon um, train, carbohydrates in general, and then sugars, which, of course, are a kind of carbohydrate, uh, have become the dietary villain. Of course, anything, if you have too much of it, will be toxic and that includes water. And certainly there's evidence that having large amounts of pure um, sugars, in particular pure fructose, which is uh, the demon of the demon, um, it certainly will make you sick if you have it on top of a regular diet. And I'm talking large amounts. I'm talking about 100 grams a day on top of what you already eat. But the reality is, of course, if we consume it in moderation, um, it's not toxic uh, as described in those various books and films and and the popular media. So it's really a matter of the dose makes the poison. One of the interesting things about the the sugar being suddenly held up as the demon is that nobody's ever really said that eating lots of sugar was good for you. Well, no, exactly. I mean, we've had dietary guidelines since the early 1980s and there's always been a guideline to eat less or to limit sugar. It's not like anybody promoted it as a health food. Uh, I think overall the industry tended to focus more on fat and they did that because fat contains more calories but um, there was always that guideline as well to limit added sugars and I think that's certainly been taken on board. Australians were early adopters with respect to replacements and the evidence suggests that we have in fact uh, used those and reduced our added sugar intake. From a you know purely human point of view why does sugar taste so good? Certainly it's one of the, the primary tastes and 
I guess the most obvious thing is the first food that we have as human beings, of course, is breast milk. And breast milk is very high in the sugar lactose. In fact, it's of, of all the mammalian milks, it's the highest um, uh, containing lactose of all the other kinds of milks that are around on the planet. So I guess it shows that humans have a need for it. We have quite a large brain and nervous system relative to the rest of our bodies, a much larger than other mammalian species, and, and it's a, a essential fuel for the, the rapidly growing. Okay, so we, as a species, we start off with a sweet tooth even. We do, that's right. And think about weaning foods. I mean, you know, traditionally it would have been fruits of various sorts and vegetables and well, and, and often plain starchy foods too, like rice, for example. But certainly carbohydrates are an important fuel. Um, our brains and nervous system estimates roughly about a third of the carbohydrates we consumed are used by our brain and nervous system. Really, it's just there's nothing really new in people moderating their sugar intake. Is this just another fad? Do you think this will fade away and be replaced by some other equally sensational fad? Sadly so. I mean, that's the one nutrient at a time approach seems to be popular. And um, But, uh, you know, there are only really three macronutrients, which is protein, fat and carbohydrate. Popularity of protein does um, ebb and uh, flow, but um, generally speaking, it's not one that's attacked. There is one other that we don't seem to want to talk about, of course, and that's alcohol. And interestingly, the ABS uh, recently released a report suggesting that Australian men consume five standard drinks per day and women 3.3, and women are rapidly catching up to men. I, I think it would be nice if we had a movement perhaps to limit alcohol in this country. Really, it's good to look at what's worked traditionally under the Mediterranean diet and the Okinawan diet. You know, people have been eating these patterns of uh, foods and drinks for many thousands of years, and they have long healthy lives and they really enjoy their food and we should be rather than trying to single out and demonize a particular nutrient or ingredient or food group looking at the positive side of things getting away from food terrorism looking at the enjoyment of food uh, like some traditional cultures have and, and really go for the good eating patterns and look at the good foods rather than reflecting and obsessing over the negative i guess in in a lot of ways it's um it's a lot less dramatic and probably sells fewer uh, books and uh, magazine covers to just say that if you eat a balanced diet and eat a moderate amount of food is probably the best option for most people. It's just not very exciting. I, I tend to think you're right, and that's the problem, I guess, with a relatively new nation in particular like Australia where we don't have a strong food culture. You know, if you went to France and you suggested you no longer eat bread because it's a carb, you know, they would uh, look at you as if you were mad uh, because it's a very important part of their culture that they thoroughly enjoy and food is a very important part of their culture. Whereas as Australians, I think, being a much younger nation, just don't have a strong food culture or identity. So we tend to, you know, go from one fad to the next and unfortunately tend to follow the uh, North American or United States cousins in particular. Um, it'd be nice if we could really embrace uh, the, the love of food um, and, and have some pride in foods that are, uh, are grown here and that are produced here and, and developed here um, rather than trying to focus on nutrients and single out a baddie to blame all our woes on. So it really is a cultural thing. Food literacy is pretty low in this country, um, as is health literacy in general. And, of course, nature abhors a vacuum, so that's where people peddling various diets step in uh, because it's an opportunity for them to uh, not only make money but also to become famous. I guess it's uh, just another case of buyer beware with, with diets as, w as much as food products but food promotion materials as well. 
I'm going to have to wrap it up there. Uh, Alan, thanks for joining us. That was Dr. Alan Barclay, who is a spokesperson for the Dietitians Association of Australia. Thank you very much for joining us on Lost in Science. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak. So in some areas of the world, approximately 40 to 50% of the population currently lives in the city. By 2025, and now that's just 10 years from now, it's expected that about 60% of the population worldwide will live in the city. Growing urbanization is a clear threat to a lot of animals, and in response to urbanization, many of them are changing their behavior and in order to adapt and survive in the cities. And um, that's what I wanted to talk about today, um, specifically talking about songbirds. Mm-hmm. Now, we've all heard songbirds, obviously. Um, we're pretty aware of their lovely songs that birds make, um, especially around spring, around breeding time. When, around 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> when you're trying to sleep. Um, but particularly when males are trying to attract a female mate. Um, not only do songs help you... Um, find a mate, but also uh, to communicate and defend territories. Um, Songs are pretty important, especially for birds, as it's their main source of communication. However, city noises have been shown to overlap and interfere with the signals um, that birds are making, and it's making the communication among birds really difficult and unreliable. Um, In cities, we typically have a low grumbling background noise that's mm-hmm. there pretty continuously and this is around the two kilohertz frequency uh, these noises are typically from things like traffic and yeah. um but there's other things uh like people's houses and generators and air conditioners and things like that that just contribute to this low grumbling noise that the city just produces uh this two kilohertz frequency conveniently or inconveniently seems to overlap pretty um pretty happily with a lot of the birds' songs. And it's just making them uh, making the songs difficult to be heard by other birds um, since it doesn't stand out from the background noise. So basically the, the noise of the city is around about the same frequency as the songbirds' call. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, or, or a, lot of, a lot of their songs. So the songs are just being masked in a way. Okay. Yeah. So in studying the impact of city noises on birds... Researchers have identified um, an interesting way that birds are adapting to the noise. In cities, individuals are actually singing louder and at a higher frequency than the same individuals or individuals of the same species in rural areas. And this phenomenon has occurred or has been shown in a number of species, especially um, more of the urban dwelling species like uh, blackbirds and great tits and robins and song sparrows Mm -hmm. and all of those kind of birds. Um, so by increasing the frequency, the the birds are getting away from this masking effect and they're able to be heard above the background noise, but also the higher frequency is allowing the song to travel further. So the idea there or what um, researchers are thinking that the ways that this has helped is by letting the song travel further since high frequency travels further than low frequency and it's also going to a larger range so then it, there's a better chance of um, of another individual hearing the song so if it's in if it's in the context of finding a mate then this higher frequency sound song that the male is making has more of a chance of getting to a female mm-hmm. but this is 
it's interesting because it can be they can be heard, but the cost to it um, there's a there are a number of costs to it. So it's, it's not really sh- we're not sure if this is really a a good thing to be doing. Um, there's energy that goes into making the louder and the higher frequency songs, which could uh, um, be used otherwise. Um, but there's also a number of other uh, issues that come up with changing your song. The first being that um, the new songs may actually be less attractive. And by this, I mean that the songs are generally really specific and birds are meant to show off their their quality and their fitness. And when they're making these these songs, they're displaying themselves. But when they change the song and they're using a higher frequency, they're, they may be less attractive. And so females may not be choosing males that make hmm. these songs. So even if they're being heard they're not um, necessarily going to attract a mate. Secondly, um, there's an interesting issue that comes up with paternity, and this comes out of Dr. Hal Fork's work at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And he was working on the Great Tit, and he found that, yes, so first, uh, if you exposed uh, male uh, birds to traffic noise, they did sing at a higher frequency. But if you analyzed nests, so the nests that then these males and a, a female produced, um, if you analyze the nests for paternity, he found that males that sing at a higher frequency actually are more likely to be cheated on. So the female has eggs in her nests from different males, and that's right. that's more likely to occur in um, in pairs where the male is a higher frequency singer. Um, and then in the cases where they have the full paternity, the female actually um, lays fewer eggs. So even though they're attracting the mate, they, they're probably not producing as much offspring as they would be if they were singing at the lower frequency and attracting a mate with that mm-hmm. with that song hmm. instead. Hmm. Um, and then the last um, kind of interesting idea that comes out of this whole changing the song theory or... Um, this strand of research is that there's the cultural slash communication side of it. Um, songs are exp- are actually accepted to be a pretty cultural part of a bird's life, mm-hmm. um, as younger birds learn songs and their repertoire from from older individuals. These songs are passed down from generation to generation. But when the birds change their frequency and the song it's almost as if they're speaking a different language or they're talking with an accent and this may complicate the communication between the original song singers and the new song singers and so studies have even suggested that after some time it may be um, possible that urban individuals and rural individuals of the same species won't be able to communicate because uh, because the songs are so different um, and it may be that this lack of communication and the ability uh, or will lead to a lack of ability to mate with one another, and then there might be a, um, leading to a diverge, um, a divergence, and into two different populations even. Hmm. So it's pretty interesting to see what will happen. So yeah, birds in the city sing at different frequencies to be heard over the low grumble, but this might not be so great for them. Okay, that is it for another episode of Lost in Science, where we have listened to the sweet songbirds. We have tasted of the sweet sugar, I suppose, or Mm -hmm. find out whether that's good for us. And we have 
looked at the accuracy of science. You'll always get accurate science on Lost in Science, though. Uh, well, Lost in Science, of course, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where we put up links to our stories and, um, and our podcasts or you can find us on Twitter where we, um, we are very vibrant and communicative there or you can listen to us on the radio where we are extremely vibrant and communicative. <laughs> um, same time next week, Stu, Manisha, Claire and Chris will get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.